You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun. While we learn, you can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com. And of course, I will answer as many as I can. So this week, this week is going to be a numbers week. We're going to talk all about numbers. But I have my own special number this week. And that number is 200. We are actually up to our 200th episode. Yeah! Yay! Woo! And now I have my own clapping track. Amazing, amazing. You know, I can't remember. I think, Kelsey, you've been along for almost the whole ride, right? Way back. Yeah, three years. Three years. And David, I know you've been here, but I don't know if you ran the board. No, no, but I probably started a little bit after Kelsey did. Okay, wow, amazing. So you've been along for the ride, and Alan's just starting. So we're working on it. Yeah. Very good. So that's a great number, but we have other Jewish numbers to discuss this week. I'm not sure if 200 is a Jewish number, but um, we are now in the, the English word would be the counting period. We are in what's called Sviras HaOmer. Sviras HaOmer literally means the counting of the Omer. What was the Omer? The Omer was a barley sacrifice that was brought on the second day of Passover. What happens is the Torah says that you can't eat from the new grain crop. Barley usually is ready around Passover time. Wheat is usually not ready till around the, the um, Shavuos time. And um, you have to eat from last year's wheat until the sacrifice is brought, or nowadays, until the second day of Passover has come and gone. So until that time, you cannot um, you cannot eat the new wheat. The sacrifice allows the new wheat to be, I keep saying wheat, but it's really all grains, wheat, barley, oats, rye, spelt, all the grains. From that day, the Torah says a very interesting command. You have to count seven weeks of seven days, seven times seven, 49, 49 days. And after you count from the second day of Passover, 49 days and seven weeks, uh, then will be the holiday of Shavuos. It will be that holiday when we received the Torah that will take place after the 49 days, really day 50, which is interesting. That means the Shavuot holiday is not a calendar holiday. You can't ask me what day of the calendar it is, even though the rabbis worked it out that it's always the same day, but that's not relevant. The Torah doesn't say a day of the calendar. The Torah doesn't say on the sixth day of the month of Sivan is the holiday of Shavuot, unlike Passover. So Passover is the 15th of the month of Nisan, and Yom Kippur is the 10th day of the month of Tishrei, and Ebedos Hanukkah is the 25th of Kislev, or Purim is the 15th, is the 14th, I'm sorry, is the 14th of Adar. Shavuot doesn't have a, a day. 
it is, you count 49 days and day 50. It's interesting how we count. It's debatable in the rabbis. So we actually count days and weeks. So, for example, today happens to be day 11. So we say today is the 11th day, which is one week and four days in the Omer. It is also interesting that the way we count is we count up to 49. Even though we're looking forward to the when we receive the Torah, so you would think 49 days left, 50, 48, 47, 46, 45. No, we count up. We're always going up. We're climbing higher and higher and higher. That's why we count in that direction. We're counting higher and higher till we're on the level that we are ready to um, to receive the Torah. Um, why is counting such a big deal? And by the way, we see counting in a lot of places, right? We count the days of the week to get to the Sabbath. On a Jewish calendar, we don't say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right? Those are um, Roman names, to my knowledge, um, or probably names of uh, probably gods. I have no idea. Um, a Jewish calendar would say Yom Rishon, the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi, Yom Vi'i, Yom Shishi, the sixth day, right? Just like it did at the beginning in Genesis where it talks about today is day one, today is day two, today is day three, till you get to the Sabbath, and that's Shabbos. So we count to the end of the week, which happens to be the number seven. We have the sabbatical year. The Shemitah, which, by the way, and I'm sure we'll get a lot of talking about it next year, because next year is a sabbatical year, so that makes a lot of rules and regulations in farms and farming in the land of Israel. So again, we count year one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And the seventh year is a sabbatical year. And then the same concept of seven times seven. After we go through seven sabbatical cycles, then we get to what's called the Jubilee, year 50, or the Yovel, and again, that has a lot of Shemitah laws that does not exist nowadays um, for numerous reasons, which I'm sure next year, or maybe we get to the Torah portion of Bahar, we'll talk about it. I'm sure we have talked about it in the past. The Jewish people would be counted when they went out to war. They wanted how many people were in the army. We find by King Saul did it. King David does it. Um, we, we find throughout the Torah this counting of how many Jewish people there are. So counting is a big deal. Why is counting a big deal? Because when you count something, you give it an importance. It's something you love. Now, we make fun of people who count money, but it is the same thing, right? I'm counting my money. I like my money. I want to know how much money I have. It's something we count. When we count things, we, we, we make it important. And here, too, we're counting up to when we receive the Torah. Now, we already received the Torah. So what are we doing now? So there's another counting that we do. We don't exactly do it as a counting, but it's still a number. And that's the number four, which, of course, we just finished Passover. And the number four comes up multiple times over Passover. We talked about it. You go listen to the old shows. Um, the number four is important by a sacrifice because you need four days to, I'm sure generally the farmer would do it or the priest would do it in the temple, but they would watch over an animal for four days and uh, that way they would be able to check if there's anything wrong, if there's any blemish that would cause that animal to be unfit to be a sacrifice. Certain things are obviously more noticeable, 
probably certain things were less noticeable. So they, so the Torah is a four-day, um, you have to watch the animal for four days, and then, then you can bring it as a sacrifice. And and uh, it, we use that same number four, by the way, when we right before the, the Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, where the, by Ashkenazim at least, they will say prayers early in the morning called the Slichot, the Slichis, that they will say minimum four days before Rosh Hashanah. We always start on a Saturday night, um, but it, you have to get a minimum of four days in. If you can't get four days in, because let's say Rosh Hashanah is going to be like on a Monday um, or on a Tuesday, so then you have to start the Slichot the week before. Because it's, why you have to start Saturday night is a different conversation, but we need that minimum, we need that minimum of four days. Why? Because we need to check ourselves. Right? Are, are we ready for the high holidays? Are we ready for Rosh Hashanah? So it's like a symbolic for us. Just like a sacrifice needs four days to be checked to make sure everything is good, we too need a minimum of four days to make sure everything is going well. So too... The 49 days leading up to the Shavuot holiday is the Jewish people getting ready to accept the Torah. And like many things we do, just like on Passover, it is important that our mindset, it's more than our mindset, by the way, but at least at first glance, that our mindset has to be, we left Egypt, and um, I had a new Haggadah this year. I'm proud of my son-in-law. Um, I bought a certain Haggadah for myself. It's called the Slanim Haggadah. And uh, my son-in-law also bought it for me. But he came into the house. It must have been on the table. And he says, I, I bought you the same Haggadah. He tries to buy me stuff. But he said, but at least I know that I got it right. This is something that you wanted to see. This is something you like. So he felt very proud that uh, he read me properly. And uh, I appreciate that he read me properly. And and they and in that it's more Hasidic, more on a on a different plane, uh, but a easy, holy easy Kabbalah, so I could handle it. And uh, and one of the things they talk about is that that it's not just that we have to look at it like we left Egypt, but there's like a redemption. There's a yearly redemption from Egypt. What does that mean? So the. Really, Abraham had been told Jewish people will be in a land that's not theirs. They'll be slaves 400 years. But anybody could do the mathematical calculations. We were clearly not in Egypt for 400 years. Um, so God calculated, made a different calculation to take us out early because we had sunk so far. We were so far gone spiritually. You could still tell we were Jewish. We've talked about this in the past. You could tell we were Jewish but there was nothing Jewish about us. We had sunk so low that we were at what's called the 49th, we, we, we had passed, I guess, the 49th gate, the 49th level of impurity, and one step further, we'd be gone forever. So God had to get us out quick. The problem was we needed to pick up our level to be ready for the Torah. So good, God took us out. But What's going to get us? What's going to lift us up? What's going to prepare us? So these 49 days of traveling in the desert 
getting to Mount Sinai. I mean, part of that traveling was going to the Red Sea and the splitting of the Red Sea. And then and there's trials and tribulations with water in two different places and food. And there was a lot of things happening during those 49 days till we got to Mount Sinai. We had a week of preparation by Mount Sinai just to lift us up to prepare us for the giving of the Torah. So there is a beautiful Mishnah in a tractate called Avos. People call it Ethics of the Fathers, but the the title of that tractate is Avos, is Fathers. And it's it's a collection of statements from the the rabbis at the time of the Mishnah uh, of how of what they felt was important, how to live as a good person. And there's certain times, there's certain things seem to be similar or are exactly the same. And there's six chapters, and basically that's what it talks about. It's very beautiful. The sixth chapter of this tractate goes a little bit off, off that path and has long lists. And one of the lists is the 49 ways to acquire Torah. There's 49 things a person needs to do to fully appreciate and fully be able to acquire Torah. So I don't know if we're going to have time over the next couple weeks to go through all 49, um, but certainly we can try. We can always try to get through some of them. So I actually wrote down for myself the first six, and I thought now's a good time. Let's talk about them and as many as we can get through. And because there's, there's really a lot of good stuff for all of us to take away from it. So, you know, the first one on the list is Torah study. You want to acquire Torah, you got to study, right? Which is almost like a no brainer, right? But, but it does belong on the list. Right? Because if you're not going to study, there's nothing to talk about. I can tell my students in class, it's not coming to you through osmosis. Right? You could be in the best crowds, in the best places, but without actual Torah study, there are no shortcuts. Um, I don't know if they still do this, um, but one of the ways they used to try to teach people different languages is I think they would put like headphones on and they would listen to tapes, and they're semi-conscious or something. Maybe they did it for a psychology thing. I don't know. But it was a way of, and your, your semi-conscious, that would, stuff would go into your brain. Torah doesn't go into your brain that way. For Torah to go into your brain, you have to sit and focus and study. There are no shortcuts. You need a teacher to study. You can't just go to a library and open up the book and start reading. You actually, and that is how Torah is set up, the way God set it up, and the, and as simple as it may look at times, but it's certainly complicated and deeper, and even if you can read and translate, but you still don't really understand. That was every line, we're going to have to have an encyclopedia, and you're still not sure what it means. You actually need to study with someone, I have a teacher, and again, as a person gets older, his teacher has given him the, the path how to think. And so you could sit down with a study partner, sit down by yourself and study. And then, 
And then when you get stuck or you come up with what you think is a correct thought, you go back to your teacher and verify. Did I get it right? Did I not get it right? I had recently in a, in a piece of Talmud I was studying where the teacher was unhappy that the student didn't say something in his name. Now, the, the conversation over there is why is it important to say things over in a teacher's name? That's not what I wanted to bring out. But um, but happens to be there's another place where that story is brought up. And the point of the story was that this student never said anything that he didn't hear from his teacher, even if it might have been obvious what an answer would be. If he didn't hear it from his teacher, he wouldn't say it. So just to give you a, an idea of what it means that you must study, you must have a teacher. That's number one of what you need to acquire Torah. What's number two? Number two is a simple follow-up, is listening. Now, we should not confuse, in English, these words are very similar. In Hebrew, they're not as similar. Right? Shema Yisrael, it's not just listening. It's, 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 I'm sorry, it's not just hearing, it's listening. It's paying attention. It's listening with your heart. It's catching on to the nuances. See, if I read something, I'm studying with somebody, and part of when I'm reading to him what it says, it's not just enough that he sees the words, but he has to hear the tune because the tune tells you where the stress goes, where the nuances, what are you supposed to pick up when you're hearing. And it's even further because we have the oral tradition or the oral law, right? The Torah, the five books of Moses were written down, but the explanation to all those commands was oral. Yes, it's true, there was the Mishnah written eventually and the Talmud to explain the Mishnah, but that's all oral law. It, it has to be given over. You have to, have to sit there and listen and hear and pay attention. Um, there's even a Mishnah that says there's certain areas in Torah that there can't. it has to be one-on-one because we're afraid if there's two people there, three people there, you're not going to be paying attention. You have to have the ability to pay attention and listen. So you can't rely on just pulling the book out of the library. It doesn't work. Okay. Now we're going to take this listening and hearing to step number three. Step number three is you got to put it into words. What does that mean, put it into words? That means after you hear it, you have to review it out loud. Um, Rebbe Mayer, one of the famous Tanoyim, he had a wife. His, her name was Bruya. One time she was walking by a student who was studying, and he was, like, quiet. Like, you ever go to a library, you'll see people studying. It's a very beautiful thing in a library, you see people studying, but they're quiet. And if you make noise, the librarians throw you out, because everybody wants to focus quietly. So it says this Bruya gave either him a kick or his chair a kick, whatever it was over there. She says, that's not how you study. You have to study out loud. Now, there's a psychological reason why you have to study out loud. You study out loud because that way the memory kicks in better. When you hear yourself say the words out loud, it sticks. I tell my students in class all the time, we do a lot of stuff where I say it and they repeat it. And I have other students say it and they repeat it after them. And then if I'll hear a child say it and he can't repeat the words, he can't read the words properly, I'll tell him, I say, you can't read the words properly because you are not speaking it out loud. You gotta, it's not good enough to hear. You have to say it, and you have to hear yourself to make it clear and correct. 
Now, if you ever have the opportunity, go on YouTube for the same price probably, but if you ever have the opportunity to see what a Jewish study hall is, it would blow your mind away. If you've ever been there, you've experienced it, I brought people in to study, and it's an experience. Because when you walk in to what's called the Beis Medrash, which is a Jewish study hall, when you walk into a Jewish study hall, depending on the size, I've been in study halls with 15, 20 people. I've been in study halls with 200 people. Um, I've been in study halls with five or 600 people. I, there's bigger ones. I haven't been in the biggest ones. It is a roar. You know, I, I always like appreciate it. So Shavuos night where people stay up all night studying. So I usually lecture in one study hall. So I'm just giving the lecture. And then I walk back across town. Okay, walking back, so all 15 minutes. And then I go to the big study hall in town. And when you walk into that study hall, there is a roar. It is a wave of sound coming at you because there are hundreds of people studying out loud. And you would think, oh, come on, I can't study in a study. Oh, there's so much noise. It's true. It takes training to be able to be in a study hall where people are yelling next to you and you're talking or yelling at your study partner and you don't hear anything else. I mean, you hear noise, like a noise machine. You hear the noise, but, but you're studying out loud. That concept of studying out loud is fantastic. It is a different, it's life. It is, it is this, when you're, you're not just reading an old book. When you're busy yelling, screaming, talking, discussing out loud, you are bringing the Torah to life and, it's, and you are alive. It is, it is something to experience. I could talk about it. I could describe it. But if you've never experienced it, I feel for you a little bit. And uh, you should work on experiencing it if you ever get that opportunity. It's a totally different kind of study. And, uh, and that is how Torah is supposed to be studied. Loud, out loud, give and take. Not just reading a book in a library. Because in a library it's nice, but it's not alive. This is alive. That's the third one that I wanted to discuss today. Looking at my clock, I'm going to try to get through. I have three more. We'll see what I can get through. The fourth, <clears throat> the fourth one. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Allergy season. Okay, I keep drinking my water over here. The fourth one is called understanding of the heart. What does understanding of the heart mean? That means that the student needs to delve even deeper. It's not just the brain. It's the heart. In other words, you got to connect. It's, it becomes emotional. Torah study is not, is not just studying math or studying science or literature. Studying Torah is, is, is emotional. It has to get into your bones, we like to say. And so there's a fascinating concept, which I keep telling you, I started studying uh, Mesil Shisharim with a friend. We do it over the phone, Corona. And, and the first part, we talked about this last week, I think. Um, the first part in his introduction is, it's not good enough just to know. It's got to transfer from your brain into your heart. That's the only way it will become part of you. 
He even takes it further and he explains that there's a lot of people that don't like to study what we call Musr or Jewish ethics because they think they know it all already. And it's not a question of knowing, the Ramchal says, the Ramchal is the author of the Misil Sharm. It's not just the knowledge. A lot of people have the knowledge, but the knowledge doesn't make it real. So it's in my brain, but it, that's not enough. I got to get it from my brain into my heart, as we like to say, into my kishkis. I got, I got to get it. It's got to become part of me. That can only happen with with a lot of repetition, like we talked about by the Haggadah. Oh, man, I am not going to get through my list today. We'll have to save this list for future shows. But the music is playing again. Thank you for listening to show 200. I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you to whoever's on the listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you to whoever the production team, David, Kelsey, and Alan in the back. I have left you some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to, to Let's Talk Torah on NM Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it.